Well, as we continue our worship this morning in the Word, can we take a few moments to, to prepare our hearts as we bow in prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, we just come before you and we are grateful to behold you in our worship, to declare that you alone are God, that you are holy, set apart, and yet, Lord, you have revealed yourself through the person and work of Jesus Christ, and we are incredibly grateful for that. Father, as we transition from our worship in song to our worship in the word, we pray, Lord, that you would go before us. What we know not teach us, what we have not give us, who we are not in Christ. Please make us, and we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18. We'll be taking a look at verses 15 to 20. We're going to be taking a break this morning from our series in the letter of Galatians, and then we'll resume that next time we're together. Uh, this morning, I've entitled our message, um, Caring Enough to Confront. Caring Enough to Confront. Uh, as you head there in your Bibles, Matthew chapter 18, I want you to imagine with me for just a moment that I'm doing laundry at our house. My wife might be thinking, well, that's hard to imagine, but <laughs> follow with me for just a moment. Imagine I'm doing laundry and I'm grabbing a few of those laundry detergent pods. Have you seen these? I mean, they're, they're compact, they're colorful, they're convenient, but they can be harmful if kids get their hands on them. They're dangerous, they're poisonous. If they lick them, if they eat them, put them in their mouth, it can cost the life of a child if we don't watch out for that. And so imagine as I'm doing laundry, I drop one of those pods on the floor. And later, I've got a one-year-old, a, a four-year-old, and a six-year-old. Imagine that I see them in the distance getting a hold of one of those pods. And one of those kids, imagine with me, takes a lick of it. And I can see them in their face, and they like it. And I know that they're going to take a, a second lick of it. Now imagine with me that I'm thinking to myself, you know, I probably wouldn't do something like that. But, you know, <laughs> I'm trying to raise my children in a loving and inclusive home. And so I want to respect their choice and allow them to make their own decisions. If you heard what I was thinking, you'd probably come up to me and say, not only is that bad parenting, that's neglect. You should probably be reported to the authorities because the most caring and loving thing that you can do for your child is correct them in that moment rather than let them poison themselves with that pod. Or imagine with me for just a moment that I go into the doctor's office for my yearly annual exam, my checkup, and the doctor informs me, you know, you're a magnificent physical specimen. I say, well, thanks, doc. I appreciate that. He continues, he says, no, you, you have the body of an Olympian and you are to be congratulated. I say, well, doc, I have been working out here and there and turns out that I go home and I end up walking up my stairs and my heart gives out because turns out my health isn't as good as I thought it was. I was, I, 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 I go back to my doctor. I say, doc, how come uh, you didn't tell me what happened? And he said, well, to be honest, you were in bad health. But the reason I didn't say anything is because the kind of place we're trying to create around here is a loving and inclusive environment. And he, he said, it's truly not good for business if I confront people about their physical health. And you know what I would say to that doctor? I say, doc, not only am I going to report you and perhaps uh, get your license taken away, but but I don't pay you to tell me what I want to hear. I pay you to tell me what I need to hear. And the most caring thing that you can do for me as a patient is to correct me and to confront me. 
You know what's true when it comes to a caring parent who corrects their child? And what's true for a caring doctor who confronts their patient about their physical health is also true when it comes to fellow believers within the local church who have been called to correct one another or to receive correction when one or one or another is caught up in a particular sin. And that's what we're going to talk about in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, verses 15 to 20, as we consider the principle of caring enough to confront and what God's Word has to say, what Jesus taught about confronting sin in the local church. Would you stand in honor of the reading of the Word? Matthew, chapter 18, beginning in verse 15 and following. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that you ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. The word of the Lord, y'all may be seated in the presence of God this morning. This morning, in light of God's word, I want to take some time to consider what does God's word have to say? What did Jesus teach about confronting sin in the local church? What did Jesus teach about receiving correction and correcting fellow believers when they find themselves caught up in sin? As we walk through our text, I'd I'd just like to give you an outline of what we're going to talk about. First, we're going to consider the motivation for confrontation. What's the motivation for correcting fellow believers or receiving correction from a a fellow believer? Then we'll talk about the method of correction and confrontation as we'll see it in verses 15 to 17 in our text. Then we're going to talk about the message given from Jesus Christ to those who walk in obedience to his teaching in verses 18 to 20. But I'd like to begin by talking about the motivation for confronting sin in the local church, either receiving correction or giving correction when we see a fellow believer is caught up in sin or when a fellow believer sees that we are caught up in sin. Uh, The first thing that you see in scripture is the motivation is love. Even as you take a look at verse 15, it's interesting to note that it's used in the context of using familial terms. It says, moreover, if your brother sins. And so we're reminded that within the church body, we're more than just friends. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. Because of what Christ has done on our behalf, we're children of the living God. Now, whenever we hear the terms discipline, correction, or accountability, um, within the context of the relationship between our heavenly father and believers, it's always used in the context of love. The motivation is always love. And that's true of the relationship between our Heavenly Father and believers. That's true for parents and children. And that's certainly true for believers as we hold one another accountable. Let me read to you Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5 to 8, which says this. And you you have forgotten the exhortation who speaks to you as sons. My son, 
Do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and scourges every son whom he, whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom the father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. And so whom the father disciplines, those are the ones whom the father loves. And that's certainly true when we confront sin in the life of fellow believers. The motivation is not to get back at them or to uh, go after their reputation or to point fingers at them, but simply motivated by love in order that that person, as we'll say in a moment, might be restored. We're reminded that not only are we described as brothers and sisters in Christ, and that's our motivation, but in Scripture, we're also described as members of one body. Jesus is the head, we are the body. In 1 Corinthians 12, 26 to 27, it says, and if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is caught up in sin and the consequences of that sin, we all feel those consequences. We all feel burdened by that. And so our motivation to correct is love. The motivation of the person to correct us, Lord willing, is love. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. And because of that, the motivation is love. Charles Finney once said, if you see your neighbor sin and you pass by and neglect to reprove him, it's just as cruel as if you should see his house on fire and pass by and not warn him of it. And so we're reminded the, the reason that we correct, the reason why we hold one another accountable, and the reason we enter into a fellowship where we allow others to hold us accountable is because of love. Secondly, the motivation is that of uh, restoration. The reason why we correct fellow believers or that we are corrected in accordance with God's word is in order for that person to ultimately be restored. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, you who are being led by the power of the Spirit, not walking in the flesh, but walking in the Spirit, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. The motivation is restoration, that that person would respond to the correction and would respond in faith. In James 5, 19 to 20, it says, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. The, the purpose is always restoration. It's interesting to note that this teaching is sandwiched between a parable on top and an instruction on forgiveness below it. If you take a look back at the verses before, in verses 12 to 13, you'll see that the parable of the lost sheep is, is being described. Let's go back a couple verses where it says, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the 99 and go to the mountains and seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly, I say to you, he rejoices over that sheep than over the 99 that did not go astray. Now, when we think about that verse, we often think about that parable in the context of God's, Jesus's concern for uh, the lost. But when you take a look at the immediate context, we're talking about a believer who strays. This is a sheep of the flock of Christ. This is not a wolf in sheep's clothing. 
This is a sheep who has strayed from the flock and that tells us about the concern that God has for that lost sheep. It says that he's so concerned for that lost sheep that he'll leave the 99 and go after the one. But it doesn't just talk about his concern for the lost. It talks about his celebration for the found. And the purpose of correction when we correct one another or receive correction is always restoration so that we can join in the celebration that the lost have been found. That those who have strayed have come back to the flock and we can rejoice that the Lord has brought that blessing. And so the motivation for correction and confrontation of sin is restoration. Thirdly, it's, it's obedience. I mean, you know, sometimes when somebody's needs to be corrected or you need to be corrected, that can be an awkward conversation sometimes. For some of us, we would say, I'm not a confrontational person, and so I just don't like to deal with that when it arises. And so for some people, they would say, you know, I, that's, not just, that's not for me. I'm not a confrontational person. But what we're instructed to do in light of Scripture is walk in obedience to what God's Word has to say, not just in the texts we're in, Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20, but 1 Corinthians 5, 12 to 13, it says this, for what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are in the inside? But those who are outside, God judges, therefore put away from yourselves the evil person. And so the reason we correct one another, and if they refuse correction, go through a process of discipline that can possibly be a formal um, kind within the local church is because we want to be an obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. In our study of Galatians in chapter 1 verse 10, if you remember Paul, as he's defending the true gospel, he says, I am not serving man. I'm a bondservant of God, and so I'm going to please him and not man. And as a bondservant of Jesus Christ, I must please God. 2 Thessalonians 3, 14 to 15 says, And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed, yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. And so the motivation for confronting sin in the life of fellow believers and receiving correction is that of obedience. And then, Fourthly, the motivation is that of the health of the local church. We're reminded this is his body, he is the head. And our prayer and our desire is for the sake of the health of the body, we would deal with sin accordingly, we would correct it, and we would be corrected by, by the word. 1 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8 says, Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven, a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Levin is speaking of metaphorically of sin. And within the Corinthian church, there was a particular sin they weren't dealing with. And this is what they're told. Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may have a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And so the motivation of correction and confronting sin in the fellow life of fellow believers is that of the health of the church. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about the health of his body. And last but certainly not least, this would be certainly the greatest motivation. The motivation for confronting sin in the local church is the reputation of Christ. God takes sin seriously and so should we. 
We should not condone what God condemns. And so when sin enters into his body, we must deal with it accordingly, even if it's uncomfortable, even, when, even if it's difficult, simply because of the reputation of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. In 1 Peter 1, 15 to 16, it says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. For the sake of the reputation of Christ, with a heart of humility, may we receive correction and give correction when needed. In Ephesians 5, 25 to 27, we hear about Christ's love for his church. And we know that his reputation is at stake. It says, husband, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, a sacrificial love, a selfless love that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word. That's why Christ redeemed us locally and universally as a church so that we would, in this process of being sanctified, be presented to him in this manner, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy without blemish. The motivation is the reputation of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. And so first, we wanted to just talk about what's the motivation for confronting sin in the life of the church or in the life of a fellow believer or receiving correction. Uh, the motivation is love. It's their restoration. It's obedience to God's word. The motivation is the health of the local church and the reputation of Jesus Christ. And we, before we move forward, if I can just give us this one application, it would be this, that you and I would be eager to preserve the health of his church and to preserve the reputation of Jesus Christ by receiving correction and giving correction when it's needed, confronting sin when it's needed. And when an individual refuses to be corrected, then that you would go through a process that's laid out in a text like this. And so may we pray for the, the unity of our church not just when it comes to our common profession of faith in Jesus as our Savior and our Lord, but the health of our church and our desire to pray that the reputation of Christ may not be aligned but might be glorified and that we would make his name famous in all of the earth. And so the motivation for confrontation, confronting sin. Secondly, in our text, in verses 15 to 17, we get to see the method for confronting sin in the local church. Um, as we pick up in verse 15, there are four steps that we get to read about. I always like to say when you read verses 15 to 17 or other scriptures in relationship to correction or um, going further to talk about discipline when someone refuses correction. Uh, when you see these guidelines, you, you get to see that they're general guidelines, but they're not specific instructions. Now, there are some specifics that we see, but not every detail about how to confront sin is listed here. For instance, when it comes to these four steps, a question that might come up is, how much time do you allow between the steps? Do you go and have a private conversation with your brother or sister in Christ and then says, well, they're not turning. I'm going to go grab two or three. Do you do that immediately? How long do you wait before you tell it to the church or remove them from the fellowship of the church? And so what we're reminded here is that you have 
guiding principles. It's not laid out all together. Nevertheless, God has provided leaders within the church, spiritual leaders in the church, to help administer what discipline looks like as these steps unfold. And so these first two steps seem to be more focused on the individuals, a private conversation. Then you go with two or three witnesses. And it could be possible that when the two or three witnesses come, that you, along with another spiritual leader in the church, come and talk to that person. But we get to see in the third step, as we'll get there in a moment, that that definitely is where the spiritual leaders of the church begin to administer that step of telling it to the church. And so let's take some time to talk about this first step. The first step is to have a private conversation with them. If you receive correction or a fellow believer, as you get to talk with them, is corrected, it says, first, if, moreover, if your brother um, sins, uh, sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. First, we consider the need for the confrontation. It says, moreover, if your brother sins. Now, the unfortunate thing is that Although, as believers, we've been justified by grace through faith in Jesus, we've been declared righteous, we're in a right standing before God, we're still in the process of being sanctified. Every single day, Lord willing, we're looking a little bit more like Jesus every day. But the truth of the matter is, we're all still under construction. And so Jesus brings forth a scenario that's all too common for all of us because we're reminded that there are times when we are caught up in sin and there are times when our brothers and sisters in Christ are caught up in sin. So how do you deal with that when it happens? How do you deal with a brother or sister in Christ who is in willful sin or a brother or sister in Christ who may, um, may not fully realize what they're doing in that particular sin? Uh, but we're all under construction. always reminds me of um, Ruth Bell Graham's tombstone, the wife of Billy Graham. If you ever get this chance to see her tombstone, she's buried right next to her husband. There on her tombstone is a Chinese symbol meaning righteousness. And then it says, end of construction, thank you for your patience. (laughs) And she wanted that written on there to remind anyone who would come by that although in this life she was under construction, it's the hope that one day we will be perfected. But while we are still in the current state that we are in, being transformed day by day into the image and the likeness of Jesus Christ, there are times when we may sin, and there may be times when our brothers and sisters in Christ may find themselves in sin, and yet God has provided the body of Christ to help us come alongside of one another and help mature us in our faith. Correct us when we need it. I don't know about you, but I have certain blind spots in my life. Maybe you're thinking, I don't have any blind spots. Well, ask if you're married. Ask your spouse, and they'll let you know what they are. (laughs) Ask your friends. Ask those who are closest to you, and often they'll tell you what those blind spots are. And the truth is, we need correction. You know, in the back of my head, I got a blind spot. I can't really see what's going on back there. But every now and again, people will tell me, hey, you know you got a little white spot back there. Did you know that? And I'll often tell them, well, I forgot about it until you reminded me of it because it's a blind spot. There are certain blind spots that you and I have that often we need somebody to come alongside of us and point it out and and encourage us in our faith to grow and mature in our faith. There are other times when it's not a blind spot, it's willful sin and we're persisting in it. And there are times when we need a brother or sister in Christ to, to correct us. 
Or if, if, if we're in a place with a heart of rebellion, we, we, we might need to go through the next step of having two or three come to us to help us see the seriousness of our sin. And so we begin and we see the, the need for it. Moreover, if, if, uh, if a brother sins against you, so it could be personal, it could be a sin in general, it says go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Now, as we talk about what that means, let's talk about what it doesn't say. If your brother sins against you, it doesn't say, go and tell everybody who will listen. It doesn't say to gossip about it. It says, go directly to that person, a private conversation. It also doesn't say, go and tell the the pastor or the spiritual leaders of the church so they can confront that person about the particular sin. My prayer is that when somebody comes to me to talk about you, that I can send them back to you. And when someone comes to you to talk about me, you'll send them to me. And that we would do that for each other because if a sin should arise between us and a fellow believer, that we would deal with that privately in a conversation one-on-one. And so it does not say to go tell everybody you know. It says go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Now, at this point, the unfortunate thing about the technology age that we live in is some of us may think, well, if I quick text him really quick or text her really quick, that'll resolve this pretty quickly. I'd like to encourage us, don't text, don't even call, don't even write a letter if you're in the first century, if at all possible, have a face-to-face conversation with them. Now, there may be times when it is necessary because all conversation is cut off where that is your last resort, but as much as possible, have a sit-down, why? Because the motivation is love and restoration and care for them, for the body of Christ, for the reputation of Christ. And so the motivation is that we would sit down and win our brother back to Christ, win our sister back to Christ so that we are one as a church. And so we get to see the, the instruction, the content of it, and then the reward that follows. It says, if he hears you, you have gained your brother. It's a reason to celebrate. Jesus is the good shepherd who goes after, who leaves the 99 and goes after the one. He has a heart for the lost and he celebrates those who are found and the hope as I correct my brother or receive correction from my brother is that we then would be restored for the sake of him and his reputation and the celebration that comes with it because that's the heart behind this. You know that If somebody approaches another person with the wrong heart and the wrong motivation, it can mess this whole process up. And that's why in order to walk through these steps, we must, we must check our hearts and we must consider what the right motivations will be as we walk through these steps. And so... If I could give us just a a few ways to implement this first step, because it can come up often, because uh, there are times when I'm caught up in sin. There may be times when you're caught up in sin as a brother or sister in Christ. The first is this. Before you correct in a private conversation, check your heart. Before you confront in a private conversation, check 
your heart. Galatians, um, Matthew chapter 7, verses 3 to 5. You know the text where it says, judge not lest you also be judged? And people often say, well, that means we shouldn't be judging anybody. Well, take a look at the rest of the context as we continue. You shouldn't be judging if you have a sin in your own eye or a plank in your own eye. It says in verse 3 to 5, and why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? And so check your heart. If you may not be qualified to go and confront your brother or sister in Christ simply because you need to deal with your own sin first. Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove your speck from your eye and look, a plank is in your own eye. It's just a little speck in his and you got a big old plank in there. I mean, deal with that. Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye and then you will clearly, you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Check your Art. Galatians 6.1, which we already quoted, says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, if you're walking in the flesh as you confront your brother or you have not already forgiven them if they've offended you directly, there's no point in being ready to go and confront them. Why? Because the purpose is to restore them. If you're not ready to restore them because of the offense that has been committed against you, you're not prepared to go and confront that individual. That's why right after this text, as we've already said, is the instruction for forgiveness. Peter says, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. That seems generous. Jesus says, "Uh uh-uh. Not up to seven times, but 70 times seven. An unlimited amount As much as God has forgiven you, a debt that you could never repay, so you are to forgive your brothers and sisters who have sinned against you. You who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness. If you are going to do so with harshness, check your heart. Make sure you're qualified to go in order to restore that person. And it says, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Our hearts are easily tempted as well Um, there are some sins that we should confront other times sometimes we just get offended easily where we need to just overlook something and i want to give you an example that ecclesiastes 7 21 to 22 says this and do not take to heart everything people say lest you hear your servant cursing you for many times also your own heart has known that even you have cursed others Morning, we need to be reminded that we don't need to be so sensitive as to say, I need to bring this before my brother or sister every time I get easily offended. There are times when we check our hearts, when we can overlook a particular sin committed against us, other times when we need to confront it. Before you confront sin in the life of another, make sure you check your heart. Secondly, before you correct or confront sin, check the facts. This one's important too. You might confront a brother or sister in Christ on the basis of gossip. Hey, so-and-so was praying for you the other night and they were like, hey, we really need to be praying for so-and-so because they've been caught up in this particular sin and the reality is that was just a means of gossip there. And so we're reminded, check the facts. Thirdly, before you correct, check God's word on the matter. Can I remind us of this as believers? We have no authority outside of the authority of the word of God. If you are going to confront a brother or sister in Christ about a particular sin, make sure you know what God's word has to say on the matter. We're not here to give our opinions. We're not here to talk about past experiences. We're here to 
have a conversation about the truth of what God's word has to say on the matter. And then lastly, before you correct, check your motives doing so, as we said, gently, humbly, and with hopeful expectation. 2 Timothy 2.24-26 says this, And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility... Correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. And so, before you correct, check your heart, check the facts, check your motives. Uh, check whether you're doing it for the right reasons. Is it really a sin that needs to be confronted or dealt with or is, am I being sensitive to a particular matter? And then pray about and see what God does from there. And so that's the first step. That's the first step. And the hope is that they are restored, but then the text tells us the unfortunate news that sometimes, or perhaps many times, when you correct, it's refused the next step is described in verse 16. And instead of just a private conversation, now we have a private conference between you, that person, two or, and two or three witnesses. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And so what he quotes here is, is Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, and the text is not telling us that they have to be a witness to the sin that has been participated in. It's simply saying that where two or three are in agreement, the issue is established. And so one of the questions comes up, well, how much time do you allow between the first and the second step? Well, that is determined based on our motivation of love and restoration. Shouldn't we give that person sufficient amount of time Give them every opportunity. And that's the point of this. As we walk through these steps, this individual should have every opportunity possible for them to turn from their sin and turn back to Christ. The motivation is love. The motivation is restoration because of who Jesus is. Jesus is the one who leaves the 99 and goes after the one. And that should be our heart as we walk through this process. So go ahead and grab two or three witnesses and bring that to the person. Why? Because it establishes the seriousness of the sin. You know, my brother or sister in Christ approached me about this sin. Well, it's not really a big deal. I think it was just their opinion. Well, they brought me the word, but I don't know if it's that big of a deal. Then you have two or three witnesses. And this could possibly be a spiritual leader in the church if you wanted. It doesn't have to be. It could possibly, depending on the circumstances, be that. Or it could be another believer in Christ. If I could give us just a, a practical ways to do that before you confront, as we said, give a reasonable amount of time for that person to repent and that first step was between you and them alone and so consider what that is pray about that give them every opportunity secondly before you confront choose the two other witnesses carefully choose the two other witnesses carefully why is that important because you want to them to have the same motivations you want them motivated by love and restoration and obedience to God's word. You want them who want the health of the church to be preserved and the reputation of Christ to be honored and glorified that he is holy. Proverbs eleven fourteen says, where there is no counsel, the people fall, but in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. What a blessing to have 
different people that we can bring on board who are spiritual, who are gentle, who are those who have the right heart as you go into it. And so be very careful who you choose for those two or three witnesses. Thirdly, before you confront, continue to check your heart. Are you motivated by love? Are you motivated by restoration and obedience? And then fourthly, before you, co you confront, pray for the best possible outcome. You know, sometimes you can enter into this process just a little bit negative, thinking, oh, they're not going to turn from the Lord, to turn to the Lord from their sin. But the hope is that you know the same God we worship and serve, the God who raises dead things. Jesus Christ, who was raised from the dead in newness of life, if he offers salvation, how much more can he provide restoration and turn us back to himself and pray for the best possible outcome? And that leads us to the third step. And the third step should take place after a reasonable enough time has taken place, giving that individual every opportunity to repent. The third step in the next verse tells it, tell, it, it puts it, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he, oh, well, that's the, the, the step. If he refuses, tell it to the church. Now, as I said earlier, Jesus doesn't give us um, detailed instructions. He gives us general guidelines. And this step is helpful when it's administered through the spiritual leaders of the church because how else will you tell it to the church? And so what we need to be reminded at this point is that we invite the spiritual leaders of the church body into the process. And this is important because it doesn't give us complete details of, of how you do it. And it might be different based on the church, based on the circumstance, and based on the setting that takes place. Nevertheless, the spiritual leaders, the elders, pastors of the church are to make informed decisions. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. And so there are times when a particular sin in the church needs to be brought before the entire church, even on, in, during a worship service like this. If the pastor... The lead pastor who's preaching one week should fall, and then the next week something needs to be announced or dealt with accordingly. As you go through these steps, sometimes you've got to move quicker through these certain steps, but there are times when you may need to bring it before the entire church in a worship setting. There may be other times, based on the circumstance, that the leadership of the church may conclude, based on the right, having the right motivations and praying about it, that it would be brought simply before the membership of the church. But this is a process that has to be done as it's being administered through the church, the, the leadership of the church. I want you to know this. The purpose of this step is not to humiliate the person. The purpose of this step is not to bash the person. The purpose of this step is to restore this person, that they would see the seriousness of their sin, that they would have all of these people praying for them, that they would know that, that the, the, the good shepherd that we worship and serves leaves the 99 and goes after the one. Earlier, I talked about the parable that precedes this, how Jesus leaves the 99, goes after the one. But how many of you know this morning, we talk about sheep. I don't know if there are any shepherds out there. 
If anyone has sheep, possibly there are some farmers out here and you've got your animals as well, but uh, perhaps there are some folks who have their pets. You've got their cats and your dogs. And I don't know the kind of neighborhood you live in, but there's a lot of people in our neighborhood who keep losing their cats and they tell everybody about it. They lose their cats and they announce it on social media. They lose their cat and they put it on all of our mailboxes. They tell all the neighbors to let them know so that that cat may be found. That's the purpose of telling it to the church. So that you have as many people as possible looking out for the person who is lost, praying for their restoration, going out to them and telling them, admonishing them as a brother, not considering them as an enemy. You see them in the grocery store and you say, hey, brother I'm, or sister, I'm praying for you. I love you. And as a church, we've been praying for you and we want to call you to repentance. I want to call you to turn from your sin and the consequences that come, to, come with it and turn to Christ and trust back in him and deal with your sin at the cross because the celebration on the other side of that will be great and all glory, honor, and praise will go to Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. And so it says, go ahead and tell it to the church. You know, during this step, it's a helpful reminder if if the spiritual leaders of the church are so involved in this, that if there was a takeaway, it would be this. Pray for your elders and pastors. Pray that they would be spiritual-minded. Pray that we would not have planks in our own eyes, that we would pursue godly living, that we would be holy as he is holy, that we would stick to the truth of the gods, the truth of God's word that our authority would not be based on, on simply the position, but on the authority of what the word of God has to say. Pray for your pastors and for your elders. So at this point, that individual, as it's brought before the church, the purpose is that everyone would pray. And then there's a final step, but that step should not take place until a sufficient amount of time has been given for that person to be Restored. There may be times when you need to speed that up on the basis of the sin or on the basis of, 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 of the particular thing going on. Maybe it's a doctrinal error that needs to be confronted. Maybe it's a moral sin that needs to be confronted. But this step, as we said, is done through prayerful reflection and through the administration of the spiritual leaders of the church. And the fourth step is public exclusion. Let's go ahead and read that in verse 17. Um, but if he refuses even to hear the church, and here it means to heed, to respond in repentance and follow a path um, to following the Lord, let him be to you like a heathen or a tax collector. In other words, it's public exclusion from the church. They are removed from the membership of the church and the fellowship of the church. Why is that? Well, because when you become a, a member of the body of Christ in the local church, there are unique benefits to that. We bear one another's burdens. We celebrate one another's blessings. And when you are excluded from the fellowship of the church, you are excluded from those blessings. You're excluded from the opportunity to observe the ordinances of the church, baptism and celebrating new life in Christ. Uh, excluded from the Lord's table as we come together declaring what unites us as brothers and sisters in Christ, our common profession of faith in Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. And when this last step takes place, 
the purpose is always restoration that they would experience life without the church, that they would experience what life without Christ is like, and they would literally hit rock bottom so that they can finally grab the rock of Jesus Christ and trust back in him. But in between the, the step of telling it to the church to a public exclusion from the church and removal from the membership of the church, there should be sufficient amount of time for that to take place. And so we talked about the motivation for confronting sin, the method for confronting sin, these four steps. Lastly, the message given to those who walk in obedience to this teaching. There are three promises that should encourage us when we walk in obedience to God's word, especially in this matter. The text goes on to say in verse 18, Assuredly, I say to you, Jesus, he often introduces his statements, declaring them as authoritative and true. Why? Because he's not just a man or a prophet. He's the Christ, the son of God who has come into the world. And he says, most assuredly, I say to you, this is the truth. Take my word for it. He says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. In other words, when you go about doing church discipline, correcting and going about church discipline the right way, with the right motivations, it says that heaven is in agreement. This is a text that is similar to Matthew 16, verse 18. If you recall, it says this, and I also say to you that you are Peter. Peter has just declared Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And he says, I say this, that you are Peter. On this rock, I will build my church. What is he going to build his church on? The profession of faith that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. That's the good news of the gospel. And he says, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And so Peter, along with the church, is given the keys to heaven. What is the key to heaven? The good news of the gospel. So that when you declare to an unbeliever that if you trust in Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, and you are justified by grace through faith, you are loosed from your sins, heaven is in agreement. And if you tell that individual, if you refuse to trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord, you will be bound in your sin, heaven will be in agreement. And so when it says, as we as a church come together and say we are united, motivated by love, and restoration for that person, motivated by obedience to the truth of God's word, motivated by the, 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 the health of the church and the reputation of Christ, what you declare on earth will also be in agreement with it in heaven. So heaven is in agreement, and that's a, a promise worth holding on to. Secondly, when we do it rightly, it says the Father is in agreement. The text continues and says in verse... 19, again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Too often, that is a text that's taken right out of context, including the next one. This is given to us in the context of correction and church discipline for the purpose of that person to be restored into the body of Christ and for the sake of the reputation of Christ. But when we come together and are one-minded and are in agreement, it says the Father is in agreement as well. Not because two or three gather and we say, hey, I want to 
million dollar house and a $200,000 car and three people are in agreement about it. No, when it comes to the will of God revealed in the truth of God's word is we are in agreement around that, especially when it comes to issues of correction and discipline within the church, the Father is in agreement. And lastly, Jesus Christ is present. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. A text that is grossly taken out of context way too often. You know what Jesus is saying there? He is saying that when you go through the proper steps with the right motivations of confronting a fellow believer in Christ or receiving correction from a fellow brother or sister in Christ, Jesus says, I'm right there with you. I'm right there with that person who's giving you correction, that person that you are giving correction to, doing it the right way. When you move forward to the next step as you pray and you say, Lord, how much time before we go to the next step in order for them to repent? And then you say where there's two or three witnesses, Jesus says, I'm right there with you. Then when you gather as a church, you tell it to the church and, and Jesus says, I'm right there with you. You know, some people would say, you know, I don't know about you, but... I don't follow a Jesus who would do something like tell particular sin before the church. I don't follow a Jesus who would, who would exclude somebody from the membership of the church. Well, you must know a different Jesus than me because the Jesus we hear about here is the one who did not just teach it. He's the one who promised his presence and therefore his confirmation that we are walking in accordance with his will and with his Word. And that's a great confidence for us to have. If there were just uh, some, some takeaways for us this morning, it would be this exercise accountability as brothers and sisters in Christ. Exercise accountability. Receive correction in humility and give correction in humility with the right motivations. Secondly, continue to seek to preserve the health of the church. Continue to seek to preserve the reputation of Christ and if there was one takeaway about who Jesus is, know that Jesus, his heart is one of leaving the 99 and going after the one. He celebrates more over that one who is restored than anything else. And that is a great celebration. Whether it's evangelism and reaching the lost whom he redeemed or edification, Jesus Christ is, a, is the one that we worship and serve who is a redemptive God. And we are grateful for that. You know, this morning, before we close, I always want to give you an opportunity to, if you haven't trusted in Jesus or gotten to know the one who leaves the 99 and go after the one, the invitation is to come to him and meet your need for him. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short. Believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and confess him as your Savior and as your Lord. You know, this morning, I'll close with this. My prayer was, uh, we had actually scheduled this message to um, jump into our series in Galatians. And my prayer this morning is we've been going through a process of, of church discipline here at our church uh, with a particular individual. And my prayer was that this morning that we would be able to announce not that person, but their restoration. And that was our heart. And we've been praying for that. And we haven't gotten to that point this morning. And so after church, we want to invite you back as we move forward to that third step where we have an opportunity to tell it to the church. 
And as we have prayed about it and asked God to lead us in it, we've asked that the member, we believe the membership of the church would come and gather after the service and we're gonna take some time uh, to talk about that, to pray for that individual and the purpose is so that person might be restored. So that everyone as possible can pray can see them and say, we love you, we care about you, we, we are calling for your repentance and the joy that will come on the other side of restoration will indeed be great as we get to confront them and call them to repentance and glorify God as we do just that. And so if you're a member, we wanna invite you after that, we'll just uh, take a pause for 10 minutes, we'll come back, it won't take long. We just ask if you're not a member that, that you would not come to that meeting. If you are a member that you would come, it won't take long and then we'll uh, conclude later after that. And so let me pray for us this morning. Father, we are grateful for your word and we know that that is the authority for our lives and the authority for our church. This morning, I pray for anyone here today who does not know you but wants to and in this moment recognizes their desperate need for forgiveness of sins, recognizes that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God who's come into the world and they want to receive that forgiveness and the promise of everlasting life. I pray that they can express this. Father, I know I need Jesus. I owe a debt that I could never repay, but I believe that Jesus is the, son, the Christ, the Son of God who has come into the world. Today I make Jesus my Savior, my Lord, the one I'm going to follow all the days of my life into eternity. Father, I pray that as a church, we would be about walking in obedience to what your word has to say. I pray, Father, for the spiritual leaders of our church, our elders and our pastors. I pray, Lord, for the membership of our church. I pray for the health of our church. And above all, I pray for the reputation of Christ to be honored and glorified and praised above all things. And Father, I pray that you would um, take care of us and go before us as we sing our final song and then go from there. We give you all honor, glory, and praise and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.